Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and beautiful people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, your insomniac host today, and we have an episode of the POTS Diaries, where we get to know someone in the POTS community and hear their story. Today, we are speaking with Heidi, who kindly volunteered to share her story so that the rest of us might benefit. Heidi, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, You're welcome, Jill. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this. Can you give us the quick introduction to Heidi? What's your age? Where did you grow up? Where are you now? What else should we know as an intro? (laughs) Sure. My name is Heidi, and I am now 41 years old. I was born in Michigan, but I grew up in Oklahoma. And I I left Oklahoma around the age of 15. I went to school in Virginia to a boarding school. And then I went on to New York and lived in New York until I was about 26. I spent several years in Asia, in Singapore and in Indonesia, Bali, Jakarta. And now I am back in the States, my family in Birmingham, Alabama. Wow. Okay. Cool things to ask you about when we get to that point. But first, so like, can you tell us what you were like as a little kid? I was very thoughtful. I think that I was quiet. In fact, I was very quiet. I don't think I even spoke until I was age four. I was very outgoing though, and I really loved to be outdoors and very active. I had lots of friends from all different kinds of backgrounds. I think I liked to really befriend just about anybody. So what about now? If we were to ask your family or friends to describe your personality, what would they say? Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea what my friends would say about me uh, necessarily. I, I don't know if I could put words in their mouth. But I can say that I am very interested in different cultures and different people. And and I have always loved to travel. I'm a very curious person. I try to be upbeat. I I'm very integrious. I am as honest as they come. At least I try to be. And I really care about being there for others. And and I think that I really care about encouraging others to be their best selves. I think you mentioned you had kids. How many kids do you have? Do you mind telling us their ages or anything about them? Oh, sure. Um, I do. And I'm very proud of them. They're beautiful. I have two girls. One is age six. One is almost about to be nine. They homeschool. So I teach them at home and we have a fabulous time together. I just have to ask, because I'm so curious, how did you end up in so many places in your life? I think you mentioned everything from like Michigan to Alabama to Singapore to New York City to Jakarta? Yes. Well, I am a dancer. I have a background as a professional dancer and dance really took me around the globe. I actually toured the world in a professional dance company, the Martha Graham Dance Company. And so I have been to a lot of countries as as an artist for my career, but I actually went to Asia and lived in Asia after 
my dance career, I had decided that I wanted to do a sort of self-imposed sabbatical. I wanted to learn about the dances of Asia and connect with dancers there and study directly with those communities and especially the Balinese artists who are so incredible. And that's why I went. I ended up actually teaching at the School of the Arts in Singapore as a modern dance teacher. But I also created a couple of dance companies over there and, and then went to Jakarta and traveled around to, to different communities learning learning their dance styles. Wow, that's amazing. So I'm excited to hear more of that in the context of POTS. Can you tell us the first that you know of that you ever had any symptoms that were related to POTS or related things? Yes. So thanks, Jill. I, I think it's quite hard to know. I was actually diagnosed with POTS five years ago at the age of 36, about a year after the birth of my second child. So it's really hard to know what is POTS. I feel very strongly that I had POTS symptoms as a young child. My first experience was when I was three years old. I was living in Oklahoma. My family had just moved there from Michigan. I became extremely dehydrated. I almost died. I was hospitalized for quite a long time. And I had no illness that caused the dehydration. So when I recovered from that, as I grew older, I would have a lot of episodes where I just needed to sleep a lot. And it was funny and bizarre to, I'm sure, to those around me because I was so outgoing. They probably just thought this child really put in a lot of energy today. But I remember sleeping quite a long time, even as a five-year-old or six-year-old. I started feeling, I started passing out in sixth grade. So I must have been 11 or 12 years old where I started having passing out episodes. And I regularly had those experiences that I think are often diagnosed as anxiety, but they they weren't. I was a very calm and happy child. So so I would have these internalized tremors and sort of... um, a feeling of I can't get my air and overwhelm is really, you know, the, the word that comes to mind is I would feel overwhelmed by my reality. And that started really kicking in when I was 11 or 12 as well and carried through my whole life and career. And things eventually, all of those symptoms eventually got worse as I got older. I feel that for sure I was experiencing something quite young. As you were growing up, did you just assume that you were an anxious kid or what did you think it was? Well, to be honest, I really believe I became a dancer because it cured me. I I really believe that dancing as a child, it gave me what my body needed. I became more and more attracted to it. I felt amazing in the dance studio while I was moving. And it helped those symptoms sort of stay at bay while I was out of the dance studio. And I think it kept the symptoms distant enough between each episode that they were more looked upon as single episodes rather than a string of common events. And really not until I've been older that I've realized that that wasn't just single episodes that would occur every other year or so, but that was actually a true string of events from my system. The Martha Graham Dance Academy is so famous. And so that tells me that you must have been able to keep up with some pretty rigorous training and dancing. Was that tough or that was okay up until five years ago? Or I mean, what was your dance career like? Yes, that's a really good question. I actually went to the Juilliard School 
as well. And that, I would say, was even more vigorous in many ways than the Martha Graham Dance Company as a professional. The Juilliard School is really dancing 12 hours a day, sometimes six days a week for four years. Between the ages of, I was there between the ages of 17 and 21. And then after going into the Martha Graham Company, I was there until I was 26. So it was really a span of 10 years there where I was really, really active. And I have to say that I had extreme symptoms during that time. There's two ways to look at it. I think that the one side of it is that. I was a dancer in the professional realm where the things that are happening with you physically in the mind of an athlete is you deal with it. And I was in a highly supportive community. I do have to say that those communities were really there for me. And had I come out and said, hey, I'm really dealing with something big here, they would have been there for me. I think because I would privately go see the doctor and the doctors would say, oh, you look great and you're so healthy and you're an extreme athlete, then you're perfectly fine. And I took that and I accepted that. I would often just hide it. I would have to say, I just, I just hid my experiences. And I feel sad now after the fact. I'm actually getting emotional <laughs> about it, talking about it. But I feel, I feel sad now because I had really extraordinary experiences as a dancer that really are extremely rare. Behind the scenes, I was struggling so much to enjoy because I was so sick. But nobody knew that I was sick. And I hit it. I really hit it just because I, my, I think my mentality was that I really wanted to do what I was doing. And I really cared and loved what I was doing. And I knew that I was healthy enough to push through. And the dancer attitude was to push through. And I had great experiences that are shadowed by the pain and the suffering of what I was actually experiencing behind the scenes. I think that's why I really wanted to share my story is because nobody knows. It's a secret. It's a secret hidden suffering that is really, really intense and changes your life experience, your life quality in a really big way, you could be highly successful and, and famous and really in the forefront of the world and yet have this kind of big secret. <laughs> and I wanted to share, I wanted to share that experience. And was it even harder because the doctors were telling you that you were fine and so healthy? Like I imagine it would have been easier if you had an explanation, but instead, I don't want to force you to go to a place that's too sad, but do you mind giving us like the specifics? What did it look like during that part of your life when you felt like you had this secret, but then you had to kind of come to life and be this amazing dancer for 12 hours a day? Had I had something that was definitive my life would have been very different. And I think it honestly, when I did get my diagnosis, I was still a dancer, very much in the dance community. With the diagnosis, I have gradually over the years been able to come to terms with being very open about what's going on with me, with the world around me, with the people that are around me. And that has been such a huge change in my life. And I had to wait until I was 36 for that. And a mother of two and my career had already passed, you know, as a professional dancer and wish that I had had a definitive thing that I could point to 
But a good example, what happened to me is that I was a principal dancer in the company. We were at the Kennedy Center and the president was there watching and Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy was in the wings cheering us on. And it was such an extraordinary environment. I was so thrilled to be able to perform on the stage. And I came running out into the wing and Senator Kennedy was there just like, wow, that is so brilliant. And I passed out right there, literally in his lap. (laughs) (laughs) And when I sort of came out of it, I shook myself off and I completely pretended that it didn't happen. Of course, I had like huge embarrassment and I felt horrifically sick. I was nauseous. I was throwing up. At this point, I had been a professional already for a decade. And my boss, company manager, said, are you okay? You're not having stage fright, are you? I just shook it off and said, yeah, I'm a little bit nervous tonight. You know, it's okay, you know, and moved on and, and just really tried to just push my body through. And I I was tremoring quite heavily. So you can imagine, how do you stay balanced? I was in a white dress, single, alone on the stage, standing on one leg, doing, if anyone knows what's called, it's a ponche. And you're going way down and you're balancing for several, several counts on this one leg alone in the stage. And I'm tremoring. And I'm thinking to myself, am I going to fall on my face? Am I going to be able to do this? And having to breathe through that moment. And the fact is is that I performed beautifully and I'm proud of my performances. When I remember those performances, I thought, I really think, wow, you know, I really did the art form justice. But inside myself, I was so fighting to hold on that I couldn't enjoy what I was doing in my life. And that's the sad part. I'm so proud of what I did, but I couldn't enjoy it. (laughs) As I listen to you, the part that pains me the most is that you didn't have an explanation for why this was happening. And maybe I'm projecting, but at that point, were you blaming yourself? Were you questioning yourself? Were you feeling like this secret shame? Were you just wondering? Yes. And I sought out help. And of course, I was diagnosed with all the things that everyone's diagnosed with anxiety or stage fright. And I knew that that was not the case because I really truly am calm inside my spirit. I felt empowered as a performer. So I knew it wasn't any of those things. And I I did seek it out. But You know, I think what would have helped me that makes me so sad is what would have helped me is the medicine that I'm on now. Had I just had some medicine, (laughs) I'm so grateful for that medicine. It doesn't, it doesn't cure me. It doesn't take it completely away. But my goodness, it has given me the quality of life back where um, had I been 22 years old performing the way I was performing in those experiences, had I just had the propranolol, diazepram, you know, any of those with me, then my life would have been different. And I think that's what a diagnosis does for you. And it also allows you to say, hey, I'm getting the help I need. I'm having this, I'm experiencing it, but I can do my life and I'm getting the help that I need to do it. I didn't have that power to be able to do that then. So I just hit it. And I did question. I did question myself often. What eventually led you to get a diagnosis? 
I really diagnosed myself and (laughs) I had been in Asia and I had gotten a huge relief through homeopathy, Balinese homeopathist. Their medicine cured me. I never, I didn't have symptoms for the longest time. It was really extraordinary. And that gave me the knowledge that indeed there's something out there and there's something wrong with my system, number one, and there's something out there that could help me, number two. And so when I came back to the state, when I had my second child, my POTS was so severe during my pregnancy with her and after giving birth, I was desperate. I just continued to do the research that I'd always continued to do. And I got really blessed because there is a doctor here who specializes in POTS right here in Birmingham. And I was able to finally seek her out and say, I really know that I have this. I have to say, though, I passed out at six weeks pregnant. Um, And not only did I pass out, but I passed out for three minutes in the doctor's office. <laughs> oh, well, that's kind of handy, at least. I guess. My obstetrician, and she thought, oh, no, this, you know, we have to do every test in the book to make sure that you're fine. And she put me in the hospital, and she did every test in the book. And there was a cardiologist there. After they found out that all my tests were perfectly fine and normal, they released me and I went back for my checkup to the cardiologist and I'm pregnant. And I said to her, I really believe that I have something called POT. This cardiologist is really well known in Birmingham and is one of the top cardiologists here, looked straight at me and said, I don't believe in that. There's nothing like POTS. It's absolutely in your head. You have a psychiatric issue. And she diagnosed me as a psychiatric issue and sent me to a therapist. And I worked with that therapist and the therapist encouraged me, continue to keep looking. And I did keep looking. And then I found the doctor that I have now. Even after 30 years of me looking and asking and begging for a diagnosis, I was still, even then, at the age of 36 and pregnant, told that it doesn't exist. So I did have, I had a really hard time, but I am so grateful now for my doctor. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That makes me want to scream. I'm contemplating putting the mute button on so that we can just scream for a minute. (laughs) Can I scream? I have to scream. Sorry. I do have to say, Jill, and this is for anyone that's listening to this, that moment when that cardiologist said that to me, I had a moment of anger, a kind of anger that I don't think I have ever experienced in my entire life. It was just the moment of, I know who I am. I have lived a long life. I have been successful and I am a professional dancer that completely understands every aspect of my body. And here I'm being told that I'm making it up. And I think after the long, long journey that I had, traveling, (laughs) everything that I had done. My father-in-law had taken me to that appointment. And when I came out of that appointment, he looked at me and he said, are you okay? And I told him what happened. And I just broke down. I just, I was so, so distraught. And I, I really want people to know that you are not alone in that moment. You are not alone. It's happened to every one of us. I hear it on all the all the other interviews and keep powering on and hold that in yourself. Know, know yourself. Now hold your confidence and keep saying, no, no, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm going to find out what this is. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you said that because that does feel like the cruelest 
part of the whole thing. You know, there's pain, there's discomfort, there's losing your dreams, there's changing your life, there's lying awake at night. There's so many parts of POTS that suck, but I really believe that sucks most. (laughs) Well, I mean, I do have to always look at the other side of the coin, right? I can imagine that doctors have a lot up against them and looking at the symptoms and trying to discern the many, many, many things that's possibly the culprit for why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. I have a compassion for where they're coming from. I think that's also why these interviews are so nice to put out there is for doctors just to know that, you know, we have compassion for your situation and for you knowing that you want to diagnose and help your patients. Let's learn more about this. And let's not just say no right at the onset. Let's let's question. Let's be curious. <laughs> Especially when a simple stand test could tell you everything you need to know, right? Like that's kind of the message we like to get out there is like before you write someone off and ruin their self-esteem, how about you just have them lay down for 10 minutes and then stand up for 10 minutes because that might tell you everything. Yes, that's brilliant. I think it's so brilliant to get that message out there to doctors as well as patients. Since that time, what has your life been like? You got the propranolol and what else? I continued my dance career as an administrator and as a teacher. I think what has happened and really what the pandemic did for me, like many other people, is it really uh, threw me into a scenario where I could sit back and recognize what I am truly dealing with, with POTS. I was only three years into diagnosis or three and a half, four years in as the pandemic hit. And I was still trying to grapple with how do I adjust my lifestyle to support my symptoms? The truth is that I don't believe my symptoms are getting better. I really do believe they're getting worse. I have more help and I am far happier than I was despite them getting worse. But I have to really cultivate a lifestyle that is really true to who I am. I have let go of, of course, hiding it, but I also don't focus so much on it either. If I'm not feeling well, then I have built a lifestyle where that's okay for me not to feel well and to take care of myself in the way that I need. It's taken me a long time and I'm still continuing to find it. What is that lifestyle? But I work from home. I'm a teacher at a college and I live right on campus. I don't sign myself on to more than one class a day that I teach. I make sure I get lots of exercise outside of that. As I say, I homeschool my girls. Even our school routine and our social routine is completely available to a last minute adjustment. I have to say, I really am in the in the place in my life that is the best it's ever been for taking good care of myself. And I'm grateful for that. That's great. And I guess I just want to take a minute to repeat what you said and make sure we all heard it correctly, which is that you think your symptoms are getting worse, but you're still the happiest you've ever been. Do you mind just kind of explaining that? Like, why are you happier if your symptoms are worse? Well, it's because I am not putting myself in circumstances where I need to Uh, explain myself. Before I was working for someone and now I'm working for myself. And if I'm working for someone, then it's a sudden immediate 
oh man, I have to let them know that I can't come to work today because I'm having chronic fatigue. This is the third time this month. And then the fear comes up. I think being able to be in a position where I don't need to fear someone's response or fear losing my job as a result. And I can be honest. I also, I have to say, I'm so grateful for my partner, John Stewart. You know, he doesn't have an attitude one way or the other. If I'm sick, then I'm sick. And if I'm great, then I'm great. I think that being able to just be honest that, hey, today I'm not feeling well, but that's okay that I'm not feeling well. There's no emotional response to that. I can be open with my family. You know, I'm today I'm not I'm not going to go to the zoo today with the girls and that's okay. You know, we'll, we'll go tomorrow. That ability to be able to live a life like that makes having pots an insignificant part of your life and takes the significance away and allows you to just breathe with it, flow with it and I guess dance with it. That's huge. Yeah, I feel like that is really, really huge. Because I think most of us do start out with a lifestyle where we have a schedule and a boss and expectations. Pots can be such a huge upset to all that and then cause so much stress. But I love what you're saying, which is that if you recreate your own schedule and your own work, then it's impossible for pots to have nearly as much power over you. That's true. But the truth is not everyone has the luxury of working for themselves. And and I don't either. Actually, part of my work is that I teach at the college. I think what has shifted for me is that I have shifted a lot of my work to myself being my own boss, which isn't accessible for everyone. But when I am in a scenario, like I definitely every day at two o'clock, I'm going to go over to the college and I'm going to teach a class. I have the ability somehow of knowing that if I'm sick and fatigued and throwing up or doing what I need, I have a lot of tools available to me to help. I've got my medicine that can kind of diminish those symptoms, but I can also just be honest with the student. I have this syndrome. I am shaking and I may need to leave because I'm nauseous, but I am here for you and I can do my job and I can teach you and I can sit down in a chair with my chronic fatigue. And I have found ways of being able to do my work and be honest and not have to hide it despite the responsibilities that I have. I think finding for yourself what works really helps. Even if you do work for someone, there's there's mental ways of getting around that and really kind of problem solving your scenario. Having a plan in place for when those symptoms hit is really helpful. Yeah, that's fantastic. Is there anything that you know now about living with POTS that you wish you had known sooner? not to fight it, that you have extreme fatigue. There are things you need to do today, and it's going to be really hard to push through. Do what you can, and the rest leave for tomorrow. And if you can't, then let people know you can't. I think not fighting it actually diminishes the symptoms for me. I don't know if that's accurate and true for everyone else. The emotional struggle with POTS and with not knowing that I had POTS and not knowing what was going on and fighting and wishing it away caused it to be really bad. And now the symptoms are bad, but the fight isn't there at all. It's more of an acceptance. I'm almost hugging my body. (laughs) I'm almost hugging them and saying, oh, it's okay, body. You've worked hard this week. Good for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> Just sit down while you're teaching today. It's okay. And that attitude, I, I wish I had had that attitude as a younger person struggling with the symptoms. I imagine you are a fantastic role model for the people that you teach because everybody's dealing with some things that probably could benefit from some finesse like that, whether it's physical or something else. Have you ever encountered a POTS patient or an Ehlers-Danlos patient or whatnot in your dance classes? I have not directly. And I've heard through the grapevine, there is one person that I know that has told me that she's had dysautonomia, but we've not had a, an athlete discussion about it. But that's kind of you to say, I think that sort of attitude does come from dance training, really. And I think any athletic training, when you are working with your body, you realize that your body is separate from who you are. Your body is just the transporter for who you are. And that mentality, just as an athlete, what, you know, even a healthy person just struggling with the pain of training and being out there and doing all, all the things you do with your body, it, there's a separation there. That sort of separation between who you are and your mental framework for dealing with your body as kind of a separate friend in a way really helps. I think it helps, it would help a lot of people and with chronic illnesses for sure. Yeah, I really like that wisdom. I kind of had not thought of that before, but I can see how as a dancer that you have to think about it that way. Yeah, oh yeah, it's necessary as a dancer. <laughs> Definitely, because you're in pain all the time. <laughs> but I mean, and, and I and athletes too of all kind, all different kinds. I, I have worked with a lot of athletes in my dance classes, and and I they come in with that same attitude. You know, it's like something's hurting, but you you manage with it. I actually have often over the years, even as a child, I sort of imagined my body as my temple, you know, it's sort of a place that you love and you care for and you come into and embrace and it, and it transports you, but it's not you. <laughs> and that really helps. Oh my gosh, I love this. This is so interesting. So then can you describe, you know, as your body has its good days and its bad days? So do you kind of like enter your temple every morning and you're like, okay, what's my temple like today? Or what, what's the experience? Yes, exactly. I mean, I often mornings are really rough for me all the time. And so I, you know, I'll wake up. And I just, instead of really, I don't force myself out of bed quickly at all. I just kind of lay there and I, I feel my body. It's the first, very first thing I do every morning. I just lay in bed and I just check in. Kind of like, you know, if you if you go to mass and you go to, you know, church or you go to temple or synagogue or, you know, you just check in in the morning before you go to work. And that's kind of what I do with my body. I just check in. I'm so, I'm so excited that I have all these tools at my fingertips now that I know about that I didn't know about for 30 years where I can check in and say, okay, well, that chronic fatigue is worse today. So I'm going to really get that water in there and those electrolytes in there. and there are three medications that I take that two of them are voluntary. I take it when I need it. Do I need, which ones do I need today? Having that ability and being able to apply those mechanisms and, and because I can teach school with the girls anytime, it's like, are we going to start at eight o'clock this morning or do we need to start at nine o'clock this morning? Because mommy's just not able to get my body in in motion, being able to diagnose it myself every single day and every moment, but it's a check-in, 
Yeah, it's just a check-in. That's great. I feel like that's really helpful because even I, after all of this time, I sometimes kind of have this feeling like, okay, come on, body, you gotta go. And and I think what I'm hearing you say, as someone who is kind of like a professional expert at understanding and using their body as their instrument, is use finesse, don't use force. That's a beautiful way of saying it. Yes. And not just finesse, but love. I love my body. And it's hard to say that when it's when you're suffering. <laughs> and I'm not the per I'm not perfect. I have been known on day three of not being able to get up from a sofa to be so angry at my body. <laughs> so but love, but love, you know, saying, okay, well, there's a reason for this. That's okay. I, I, finesse and supporting and encouraging, but also just just embracing. That's very practical and very positive. I admire that a lot. <laughs> You should talk to my partner and you'll know that I'm not always like that. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have really bad down moments. <laughs> Are you up for doing a speed round where I ask some questions and you just say the first word that comes to your mind, even if your mind is not getting as much circulation as it deserves? I will try my best. That sounds fun. What is your favorite way to get salt? Tato chips. What drink do you find the most hydrating? Fresh, young coconut. Oh, and you would know because you've been all around Asia and had the real fresh thing. Okay. What is your favorite time of day and why? This time, probably between 4 and 8 p.m. because that's when I feel my best, when I have the energy. How many doctors have you seen for POTS and things related to POTS over the years? I have no way of counting, but a lot, tens, if not hundreds. <laughs> How many other POTS patients have you ever met in the flesh, like in person? I have one that I've met with dysautonomia, but not no one with POTS. What is one word that describes what it's like living with a chronic illness? Humbling. What is some good advice that someone ever gave you? Focus your mind on beauty. What is something small or inexpensive that brings you comfort or joy? Holding my daughter's hands. Oh, very nice. Who is someone that you admire? Anyone with an illness and anyone who takes care of those people with an illness. And anyone that lives with those people with an illness. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> what is something that you are proud of? I'm proud that I'm alive and having a great time despite the pots. I'm, I'm really just proud that I'm here and enjoying life with my children. Beautiful. What is the toughest thing about pots? Dealing with day three and four when it's gotten so bad you can't do anything physically. If you had infinite funds, what is a gift that you would send out to every other POTS patient in the world? A York peppermint candy. Ah, what is something that you are grateful for? I'm grateful for the POTS cast. I'm grateful for what all of you are doing with this. Um, I think it's really amazing that we're bringing knowledge and information to people that are suffering alone with POTS. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for you, Jill. 
<laughs> That's so kind. I'm so grateful to people who share their stories. I mean, I was telling you this before we started recording, but when they asked me to share my story on the podcast, it made me kind of emotional for a couple of weeks as I was preparing for it. And I was kind of down and I was kind of feeling like, oh, this is actually tough to have to dwell on everything that led up to now. And even though everything now is very good, there was a lot of pain there. So I have new appreciation for every single person who has been willing to talk about their experience to help others. So I'm hugely grateful to everybody who is willing to do that. For anybody who doesn't know, on our website, standinguptopots.org, there's a sign up where you can offer to do it. And now that I've done it, I realize it takes some courage. Well, I have to shout out to my father-in-law because I told him about this and how much I was getting through the interviews I was listening to because I would listen to them when I was really down and out with chronic fatigue and feeling nauseous. And I, I was really at, at some points pretty bad mentally. And, you know, I just turn on an interview and it is incredible how much hope hearing a voice from of somebody that's suffering in the same way has helped me. And I was sharing that with him. And he said, well, you need to interview, you should do that. And I said, no, I, I'm not very good at things like that. But I don't think so. But I'm just sharing how much I appreciate it. But you know, that left something with me that he was encouraging me to do that. And I am encouraging others to do it too. And it, it is hard. I mean, Jill, you know, I really struggled to say, do I really want to do an interview and talk about this? Because I don't even want to give it, I don't even want to give POTS even a thought. The community is is so powerful. And my father-in-law was right. You know, it, it's really helpful to to share your, your story. And it's really helpful to hear what others have to say. And, and I've gotten a lot from them. Yeah, if you're listening to this, please do an interview because I want to hear I want to hear your story and your experience so that I can learn more about how people are doing with this. I do too. And you know, we have the benefit that we record these when we're not having our bad days, right? Like actually just yesterday, I was having a bad day. A plumber came to my house, made some repairs in the process. He used some really, really stinky glue that made me have a terrible mast cell reaction. And I had to leave my house and I couldn't come back to my house for hours and I had to reschedule. But, and I was in a bad mood and I was all freaked out. And you know, that feeling of impending doom when you're having a mast cell flare. But the funny thing is, I never record a podcast when I'm in that state. I record a podcast when I'm feeling pretty good and things are great. And, you know, we, we can reschedule when we're bad. I always worry that anybody out there listening is thinking that we're always like this and that we don't have those bad days. We do. We just don't record during them. <laughs> Please know that we do. And I'm a very positive person, I think, in general, and in the way that I think about things. And I come across that way. But wait, there are some really dark moments. So you're not alone. You really aren't. I'm grateful for, as I said, I'm grateful for those people that first started stepping up to do these interviews because, you know, if, and if you're listening to this and you did an interview already, know that, you know, you really impacted my life in a very some dark moments of this. And we all need that. Know that the next day is going to be better. Well, I think that is a beautiful note to end on. Heidi, thank you so much for sharing your story. I hope that your journey only has good surprises going forward. I'm so glad that you're out there doing what you do. Big thanks.
And hey, listeners, we would love to have you sign up to be interviewed too. Like we said, it's at standinguptopots.org. And also, please remember, this is not medical, dental, spiritual, fashion, or menu advice. Consult your medical team about what's right for you. And please consider subscribing because it helps us get found by more people like you. But thank you for listening. Remember that you're not alone. And please join us again soon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, www.standinguptopots.org slash podcast. And I would add, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to suggest, send them in. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots.